Join Anthony Esselin, John Warwick Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, July 25th, 2018. Got a light episode today and a good one. Kind of in preparation for the upcoming Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Conference here in, uh, well, it's actually in Oslo, Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> but one of our special speakers is Phil Johnson. Here's just a taste. You're going to hear that. A taste of uh, what he's capable of doing. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, (gasps) self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put forward by uh, for consumption by the average evangelical, it's like not even close to what God's Word says, and it's not anything that Christians have historically believed, taught, or confessed you know, in the history of Christianity, this is some new, innovative, weird, uh, apostate stuff that's uh, making the rounds nowadays. And so in order to help protect you from the false teaching that is out there, you know, on a day-to-day basis, we do the comparing and contrasting. But we've noted that that in and of itself is not completely sufficient. Uh, it's also necessary that you learn what good exegetical preaching sounds like. Uh, teaching that works through biblical texts that can rightly divide, and here's kind of the important category, uh, the concepts, the biblical concepts of law and gospel. That's a recurring uh, theme that we have here at Fighting for the Faith. That's a recurring topic that uh, I always like to address because so many Christians are perplexed when it comes to uh, their relationship with God because they are preached God's law constantly, but without the gospel. It's as if the gospel somehow has no meaning or relevance or bearing on what the Christian experiences in, in preaching and teaching. And as a result of it, this is the confusion that will lead to uh, self-righteousness and pietism, not Christian piety, but pietism, Oh, oh, and uh, and then on the opposite end of that is the reaction against legalism and Christian pietism 
and that's licentiousness and libertine antinomianism, uh, you know, vis-a-vis what you see in the liberal uh, churches today who embrace, you know, same-sex marriage and things like that. So, yeah, you have to avoid both extremes, which requires you to properly understand both God's law as well as the gospel. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to be listening to a sermon uh, delivered by Phil Johnson, one of our speakers at the uh, upcoming Pirate Christian Radio Conference. And the name of the message is titled, Heaven's Best Kept Secret, and he'll be talking about the gospel. So uh, if you want, open up to Romans chapter 3, and let's get to it. Here we go. And many of you are familiar with Ray Comfort's ministry. I know that because people ask me all the time what I think of Ray Comfort. Ray preached one of the most famous and most widely listened to sermons of our generation. It's called Hell's Best Kept Secret. And if you haven't heard it, I recommend it. He basically points out that there is one vital truth that evangelicals in our generation have lost sight of, and it's a truth that all hell would, uh, would be desperate to keep from being seen by Christians, and it's, it's this that it's the law of God, not the love of God, but the law of God is the vital means by which the Holy Spirit convicts sinners of their need for Christ. Our generation adopted years ago, even when I was a new Christian, I think the first gospel presentation I ever heard started out, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And to say that to someone who's not convicted of his sin really isn't helpful. And uh, that's what Ray Comfort has devoted his life to pointing out his ministry is Living Waters. It's also known as the Way of the Master. They train people to evangelize. I love what they do. Ray Comfort has almost single-handedly resurrected one of the most important uses of the biblical law to convict sinners of their guilt and to show them the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And that, by the way, is a proper use of the law. In our era, you'll often hear people say that they think it's inherently legalistic to bring up the law when you're sharing Christ with unbelievers. But think of this. In John 16, 8, Jesus said, it's the Holy Spirit's work to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And since the opposite of sin is righteousness and 1 John 3, verse 4 says that sin is the transgression of the law, and judgment is by definition a rendering of a legal verdict. The Holy Spirit's work in the world is by definition entirely related to the law. The law defines both sin and righteousness, and it's the basis of all righteous judgment. So the law is an excellent tool for evangelism, and don't let anyone ever suggest to you otherwise. However, and and I know you understand this, the law cannot save anyone. Galatians 2.21, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The law is not the gospel. And so if you stop with the law, you haven't evangelized anyone. So I, I keep telling Ray Comfort we need another sermon to pair with hell's best-kept secret, and I've suggested it should be called heaven's best-kept secret, and that it needs to have as much detail about righteousness as hell's best-kept secret has about sin, because once people are convicted and they understand the principle of divine judgment, 
they need to hear about the doctrine of justification and God's righteous means of saving sinners. And so that's what I propose to do this morning. We'll call this message, Heaven's Best Kept Secret. I don't have Ray Comfort's gift for evangelistic preaching, but this is a message that needs to be heard. Incidentally, the righteousness of God is a major theme throughout Scripture. It's such a consistent thread that runs through the Bible that I could more than fill our time this morning just by tracing all the passages in Scripture that deal with divine righteousness and and include that word, righteousness. From Genesis to Revelation, that is one of the core themes of Scripture. And and so I, I, I won't like take us through every passage, but I do want to start by paying close attention to how the word righteousness is used in Scripture and what it means, especially in the principal Old Testament texts where that word is employed. And that, I think, will help you to begin to understand what righteousness is in a biblical context. And then I want to spend the majority of our time looking at an important New Testament passage, Romans 3, starting with verse 19, and we'll cover about seven verses. So if you want to turn to Romans 3, you can go ahead and then, but put a bookmark or keep your finger there or something, because before we get into this passage from Romans, I want to survey a few other passages that help us understand how the Bible uses this word righteousness. You know, when we hear the word righteousness, most of us think of something like moral perfection. And moral perfection is by all means essential to real righteousness. To be righteous is to be good rather than evil or virtuous rather than sinful. And that's all quite true, but it only skims the surface of what that expression righteousness means in Scripture. And although the biblical term is rich with meaning, let's just start with a simple definition and a few words. In fact, I'll make it short enough to take it down if you want to No, I won't, but I'll say it several times. Here's a definition. Righteousness is perfect consistency with and faithfulness to all of the moral precepts of God's law. Again, you probably won't get that in one pass, but I'll repeat it so many times. If you get started on it, you'll get it before we're done. I'll say it one more time now. Righteousness is perfect consistency with and faithfulness to all the moral precepts of God's law. And that encompasses a vast array of uh, ideas, especially justice, which you hear a lot about today, virtue, goodness, faithfulness. All of that is in our definition. In fact, take note of this, and we'll come back to it. The key word in that definition I just gave you is faithfulness. Righteousness is perfect consistency with and faithfulness to all the moral precepts of God's law. And if you still didn't get it, don't worry. Just be ready to write. I'll say that a few more times. I think we can best begin to understand righteousness as an attribute of God if we listen to what Scripture says about what God's righteousness demands of us. When Moses gave the law to Israel, he said in Deuteronomy 6, verses 24 and 25, "...the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes..." to fear the Lord our God, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. So that verse actually essentially defines righteousness in the exact terms I've already given to you one more time. Righteousness is perfect 
perfect consistency with, and faithfulness to all of the moral precepts of God's law. Now, here are four things to notice about this. First of all, guilt is the polar opposite of righteousness. So if you want to understand what righteousness entails, just think of guilt and reverse it. Righteousness is the exact antithesis of guilt. And that may be, in fact, the easiest way to remember an abbreviated definition of righteousness. To be righteous means to be in the right, without guilt. It speaks of standing firm on a moral and legal foundation. In fact, the English word righteousness has evolved from an older Middle English word. It used to be right-wiseness, right-wiseness. To be righteous is to be right-wise, as opposed to contrary-wise or cross-wise. Right-wise in relationship to the law and right-wise in relationship to the lawgiver. That's number one. Number two, second, remember that the law demands perfect, meticulous, unflagging obedience. Moses says in that text I just read, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all these commandments. Anything less than absolute perfection is not true conformity to the law. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of breaking all of it. Galatians 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And Jesus said that even the ultra-fastidious law-keeping of the Pharisees wasn't good enough. Matthew 5.20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, in fact, what is the divine standard? Jesus goes on to give it very succinctly in Matthew 5.48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So God's righteousness, God's own righteousness, is the only measure of true righteousness. Anything less than absolute perfection isn't righteousness at all, and I'll come back to that. Third, number three, this is just preliminary stuff. Third, notice that our definition, the definition I've been giving you, speaks of the moral precepts of God's law. I specifically said the moral precepts. Once more, righteousness is perfect consistency with and faithfulness to all the moral precepts of God's law. Now, if you're thinking of all the 600-plus commandments that Moses gave the Israelites, erase that from your thinking. We're talking about something much more basic and more eternal than the entire Mosaic law code. The moral precepts that are contained in the law are timeless principles that reflect God's own character. So these are rules by which He has always governed humanity. These are laws that were inscribed on the human conscience ages before they were written on tablets of stone, laws that apply to all men of all ages. Now, of course, you know Moses' law contained civil regulations that applied only to Israel under the Old Testament theocracy. And in addition to the civil law code, there were dietary and ceremonial and priestly principles that were also unique to Old Testament Israel. These are generally referred to as the ceremonial law, the more or less external features of the law, mostly related to worship and the sacrificial system, laws about ceremonial cleanness, the rule that any lamb sacrificed to God had to be spotless, the, the rule against blended fabrics, 
and other laws in that category. These were object lessons. They were symbols and types and shadows, according to the New Testament. The dietary restrictions and rules governing ceremonial cleanness, for example, these illustrated what holiness means. The temporary features of the Old Testament priesthood and the sacrificial system, which has been done away with, all of that prefigured Christ and His work, and it pointed to Him. All of those things were old covenant principles, and and they no longer apply to us because we live under a new and better covenant. In the words of Colossians 2.17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance or, or the reality belongs to Christ. Nevertheless, there is an underlying framework, the, the core and the backbone of Moses' law that, that consisted of eternal moral principles. Now, this aspect of the law, the moral backbone of the law, is given to us in abridged and condensed form in the Ten Commandments. We studied the Ten Commandments years ago and stressed this, but the the moral content of the law summed up in the Ten Commandments is likewise summed up even more shorthand in the first and second great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the first and the second great commandments. And Jesus said the, the whole law is subsumed in that. That is the whole moral content of the law. The eternally unchanging moral content of God's law embodies everything true righteousness demands of us. And those eternal precepts are usually referred to as moral laws, distinct from the civil and ceremonial features of the law. So it's quite common to divide the law into three categories, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial statutes. Some people recoil against that threefold division because they don't like bifurcating Moses' law into parts, and they'll always point out that nowhere in Scripture are all the laws neatly categorized for us in those, those threefold, that threefold division. Nevertheless, there is an important point to be made about the law of Moses, and and it is crystal clear from Scripture that on the one hand, the types and shadows and ceremonies of the Old Covenant have been done away with under the New Covenant. I just quoted Colossians 2.17. That's also what the whole book of Hebrews teaches, that we live under a new and better covenant, and all those ceremonies and priestly laws don't apply anymore. On the other hand, Scripture teaches just as clearly that there are moral precepts contained in the law that are still in force, at least in this sense. They define for us what righteousness entails. They describe for us what righteousness looks like. In the words of Romans 8, verse 4, this is the righteous requirement of the law, the moral law. The moral law is what Paul says is engraved on the conscience of every human being. He says that in Romans 2. This is a necessary aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. We are moral creatures. Unlike every other creature in the animal kingdom, we are moral creatures with an innate sense of righteousness and guilt. We're hardwired with a a moral awareness of what our Creator is like and what He demands of us. It's a basic awareness. It's not complete and perfect. We also need Scripture to sort of back it up and fill it out. But we're born with this knowledge that certain things are just and certain things are unjust. We know what sin is. We feel guilt, and we understand what righteousness requires of us. It's not enough to make us knowledgeable about 
It's not a perfect sense of righteousness. It's not a sufficient knowledge of God, but it's enough to make us sense our accountability to God. And it's also enough to vindicate God when He judges people who aren't familiar with what He has revealed about Himself in the Bible. The question always arises, what about people who've never heard Scripture? How can God judge them? Because they have hardwired into them an innate knowledge that there is right and there is wrong, and they understand enough of it to know that they have broken that moral law. And there's no question that when Adam fell, it marred our innate understanding of God and His law and His righteousness. The fall certainly left us with a sinful desire to suppress what we do know about God and His righteousness. But Paul says in Romans 2.15, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. And furthermore, then, God's moral law is what's re-engraved in a more clear way on the new heart that He implants in every regenerate sinner. In fact, that's the central promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And it's worth noting that when Scripture speaks of the heart like that, it's not a reference to the blood-pumping organ. Now, you understand that, right? The heart in Scripture is that set of thoughts and desires and motives that drive us and determine our true character. Believers have a new nature with new desires, with a fresh engraving of God's law. And if you don't have that, you need to examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. And all of this illustrates that moral perfection is an essential aspect of the biblical idea of righteousness. But we need to be more specific. There is a legal aspect to authentic righteousness. To be righteous is to be in a right relationship with God's eternal moral law and thus to be in a right relationship with God Himself. And that brings us to a fourth preliminary thing you need to keep in mind about the term righteousness. True righteousness is always both personal and relational. And here's what I mean by that. Bearing in mind everything we've said so far, you need to understand that authentic righteousness is not only or or even primarily about our relationship to the law. More importantly, it's about our relationship to God Himself. It's a personal thing and a relational thing. And, And this is why I said earlier, faithfulness is the key word in that definition I gave. This personal and relational aspect of authentic righteousness is summed up in the concept of faithfulness. So here's my definition one last time, I promise. Righteousness is perfect consistency with and faithfulness to all the moral principles of God's law. Now, when we consider righteousness as an attribute of God, because Scripture describes it that way, God is righteous, what we're recognizing is that God Himself is perfectly consistent with and faithful to His own eternal law. That is true by definition because the moral law is an expression of God's character. That's the whole point of the law, to reveal to us what God's character is like. The law teaches us in precepts that we can easily grasp what the moral character of God is like, that He's perfectly righteous. And since He is 
immutable, meaning he's not subject to change of any kind. He always acts in a way that is consistent with the righteous standard he demands of us. He cannot lie, Titus 1, verse 2. It's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6, 18. He cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2, 13. Isaiah 5, 16, the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And Daniel 9, 14, the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. So all of that is a way of saying God is faithful. He's faithful to himself and to his own character. He doesn't break his promises. He doesn't go back on his word. He doesn't say one thing and do another. He keeps his covenants. He's faithful, not like the Pharisees whose obedience to the law was cosmetic and merely external and faithless. By contrast, God is faithful in every sense of that word, and and that kind of faithfulness is essential to the true meaning of the word righteousness. External, mechanical obedience to the law is not truly righteous. The Pharisee style of righteousness is not really conformity to the law at all because the law demands a faithful heart, not just faithful actions, not just righteous actions. God Himself is by nature faithful, and so He demands faithfulness from us. And faithfulness is such an important facet of the biblical concept of righteousness that it's become a pretty common thing in certain stylish academic circles to claim that that's really all Scripture means when it talks about the righteousness of God. Righteousness, they say, is, is just a synonym for God's faithfulness, His covenant faithfulness. That is the claim N.T. Wright makes in several of his works, where he says the righteousness of God is a a clear... These are his words. It's a clear Pauline technical term, meaning the covenant faithfulness of Israel's God. Well, no. I mean, that's certainly a major feature of God's righteousness, but it falls far short of giving the full meaning of what Scripture means when it speaks of the righteousness of God. In fact, to, to speak frankly... I think the push to reduce God's righteousness to this one-dimensional concept of covenant faithfulness is driven by a desire to rid the Word of its legal ramifications. If righteousness is, as we've said, perfect consistency with and faithfulness to the moral precepts of God's law, then righteousness is laden with legal ramifications. And, And let's be honest. From the sinner's point of view, that's a frightening reality because if it demands perfection and no exceptions are made, we as sinners are in a pretty precarious position. It's frightening. It's supposed to be frightening. It won't do to tone it down by redefining the righteousness of God. The bottom line is that God's righteousness sets up what is a seemingly impossible barrier for fallen humanity, because we have no capacity to measure up to the righteous standard God demands of us. In fact, we've already sinned, all of us. We're already guilty. We are already under the condemnation of the law. So from our perspective as fallen creatures, the very idea of divine righteousness conjures up the horrifying prospect of judgment. Again, that's one of the things the Holy Spirit convicts us as of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's not a positive thing. The Holy Spirit's conviction 
is to drive us to absolute despair. It's supposed to be. In fact, one of the close synonyms of the word righteousness is justice. Those words are interchangeable in many contexts. Nothing is more clear in the Bible than the truth that God's law demands justice, including, of course, punishment for evildoers. And for that reason, when the Old Testament speaks of the righteousness of God, there is often an immediate connection to the idea of divine judgment. Genesis 18, verse 5, "...shall not the judge of all the world do what's right?" Psalm 7, 11, "...God is a righteous judge." and a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm 9.4 says, God sits on the throne giving righteous judgment. Verse 8, and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Psalm 50, verse 6, the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Psalm 96.13, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. Acts 17.31, God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Remember, judgment is one of the things Jesus said the Holy Spirit would specifically convict the world of. We don't talk about judgment much anymore. There's something about it that sounds maybe unsavory to our generation. You think of a guy on the street corner holding up a sign saying the end of the world is near or something like that. It's supposed to be a fearsome prospect. The thought of God's judgment against me for my iniquities And what it means is that when the law speaks of righteousness, it's essentially bad news. Righteousness demands justice under the law, and for those of us who have broken God's law, justice means condemnation and eternal punishment. The wages of sin is death. All right, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's uh, sermon from uh, Phil Johnson, Heaven's Best Kept Secret. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Alright, I got a large non-fat decaf mocha with no whipped cream, two pumps of chocolate and diet soy milk for Tiffany. Oh, actually, it's just Tiff. 
Oh, uh, sorry, uh, Tiff, then. Like, thank you so much. I've never made a drink quite like this before. I can't even imagine what you call it. My friends call it, like, the why bother, but it sure doesn't stop me from loving it. <laughs> <laughs> nice talking with you. Adios. I am so sorry about that. Anyway, where was I? All right, so you won't believe what happened to me on Sunday. So, like, you know how I've been trying to learn more about Jesus and God and stuff? Well, ever since I got into it, my friend Brittany has been begging me to go to her church. It's that big building on Michigan Street. It's got, like, a stage and a praise band. I mean, it's got, like, a ton of people, so the pastor must be pretty cool, right? Well, the sermon starts. I've got my Bible, my notebook, my pocket catechism, and my flower pen. All ready to hear about God. And what does he talk about? A bird. This guy went on some 20-minute bunny trail about a bluebird that landed on his windowsill. And I'm just sitting there like, what about Jesus? I mean, they had just had a laser light show about how much they loved him. Um, Hold that thought. I have to use the little girl's room. I'll be back in a sec. Jeff said, wrecked him. Wrecked him. You practically killed him. <laughs> oh, I am so sorry. I've accidentally dumped my white bother all over you. Your outfit is totally ruined. Here, let me use these only slightly absorbent napkins to wipe it up for you. All right. There. A little bit there. And uh, there. That seems to have gotten most, most of it. Here's my business card if the stains don't come out. I happen to own and run a dry cleaner's just down the road. Anyway, gotta run. Oh, I am so sorry. I've accidentally dumped my second wife father all over you. Why does this keep happening? Please take my card. As I was saying, I don't even think these people realize what Jesus did. Let me explain this to you. So... First of all, I'm like a sinner, and I need forgiveness, right? So God was like, I'm going to send my son. So Jesus came, and he died on the cross, and everybody's sins were forgiven. And we were all like, cool. So when I go to church, I want to hear about Jesus. But for some reason, these people don't even talk about Jesus. You know, if you think about it, the church is like totally God's house. So Jesus invited all of us to his forgiveness party, and we all shut up and said that we loved him, And then we completely ignore him. That is so rude. Not only is it rude to God, but it's a total ripoff for me. I want to hear about how my sins are forgiven. But instead, these people are like, let me tell you my life story. Um, excuse you. You think that your birds are more important than God? That is so rude. Honey, what happened to your shirt? Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. 
down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they confuse law and gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And, of course, if you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, Patreon, just click on the Become a Patron button. All of these are great ways to support us. And let me thank you for your support. We truly, honestly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here is the balance of today's sermon by uh, Phil Johnson on Heaven's Best Kept Secret. Here we go. So it's no wonder that sinners recoil at the thought of righteousness. But the law is not the only message from God that has righteousness as its central theme. According to the Apostle Paul, God's righteousness is also the central theme of the gospel. In Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, you have that famous statement from Paul where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And now listen, very next words. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And in the gospel, the righteousness of God 
becomes good news, great news. It's actually the best news ever, and that's the whole point Paul is making in our text in Romans 3. And he, and he demonstrates with uncanny meticulousness, God's righteousness is good news. Now, it doesn't start out sounding like good news, because beginning in Romans 1, right after he says the righteousness of God is revealed, Paul goes on for the next two and a half chapters speaking about the universality of sin and guilt. And he proves from the Old Testament that everyone, and and he, he breaks it down into categories, pagans and moral Gentiles and even Jews as well. He says everyone is guilty under the law. But in the passage we're looking at this morning, Romans 3.19, if you haven't turned there, go ahead. This is the turning point in Paul's gospel presentation where he transitions from talking about sin and righteousness under the law, and he begins to help us understand how God's righteousness is also relevant to the gospel. This is where the gospel becomes good news. This is heaven's best kept secret. And it was a secret in the Old Testament. People would look at all the animal sacrifices and all the teaching that's inherent in the law about righteousness and sin. And they would say, how in the world could the blood of a goat take care of my sin? And there was no clear answer to that until you get to the New Testament. And here is where heaven's best kept secret is unveiled for us. And and in fact, if you truly understand what Paul is saying, In our passage, I guarantee you'll come away loving the righteousness of God. So let's look at our passage. First, a little bit of context. Romans, you know, is Paul's longest and most systematic discourse on the gospel. The whole book is is about the gospel. It's the central theme. And Paul's aim here is to show how the gospel manifests the righteousness of God through the salvation of sinners. And in fact, Righteousness is the key word throughout the book of Romans, and you could break the whole epistle down into three major sections. I think I've given this outline before, but I'll do it again because it's so helpful to see the flow of logic in Romans. Starting in chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3, that's the first section. Paul is talking throughout that whole section about the problem of sin. And he basically condemns the whole human race for living in defiance to the law and the will of God. And again, his point is that we are all condemned. It doesn't matter if you're a pagan, an outright pagan, or a moral and religious Gentile, or a Jew who's fastidious about following the law. You're still guilty under the law. He says, according to every conceivable standard of true righteousness as it's defined by the law, we've all broken it. We're all guilty. So we'll call that first section of Romans, the first three chapters basically, righteousness defied. And then he spends the next eight and a half chapters explaining the gospel and particularly the doctrine of justification and all its implications. And the central message there is that God in Christ has supplied on behalf of sinners all the righteousness they need for salvation. We don't have to earn it. It's given to us by grace. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us is what it is. And so we'll call that section, the central chapters of Romans, we'll call that righteousness supplied. And then starting in Romans 12 
through the end of the epistle, those last couple of last few chapters, Paul explores the practical ramifications for those of us who are justified by faith, and we'll call that section righteousness applied. This is the application of righteousness practically. And so there you have a very simple outline of what Paul is doing in Romans. Chapters 1 through 3, righteousness defied, convicts us of sin. Chapters 3 through 11, righteousness supplied, shows us the way of salvation. And chapters 12 through the end, righteousness applied, helps us understand the practical outworking of what our sanctification should look like. And the passage I want to examine with you this morning comes right at the transition between the first and second divisions. And Paul actually makes a very abrupt transition from sin to salvation. He turns from showing how God's righteousness has been defied to showing how God's own righteousness has actually been supplied to the very ones who had made themselves enemies of God and, and enemies of everything that's righteous. And it's a shocking reality if you can grasp it, and the scandal of all this is not lost on Paul, having proved and spent quite a bit of meticulous detail proving that we are all utterly guilty under the law, he's now eager to show us how we can nevertheless obtain a standing of perfect righteousness in the eyes of the lawgiver, who's the righteous judge of all. And here's the answer to perhaps the greatest mystery of the Old Testament. Here is heaven's best kept secret. It's the answer to this question, how can a truly righteous God justify sinners? How can, how can God declare unrighteous people perfectly righteous without either, on the one hand, overturning the rule of law, or on the other hand, compromising his own perfect righteousness? How can God justify the ungodly and yet remain faithful to his own law, which clearly demands the punishment of sinners? And the answers to those questions are all right here. So let me read the passage, and then we'll try to unpack it as carefully as time permits. Here's Romans 3, verses 19 through 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, Namely, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's a longer passage than we'd normally deal with, and it's theologically rich. So obviously I'm going to need this morning to focus on the big picture rather than try to deal with every meticulous detail in that passage. And it is truly a big picture. This is the vital passage that helps us make sense of every other reference to the righteousness of God in Scripture. You can't understand God's righteousness at all if you don't grasp what this passage is saying. This is the crucial section of Scripture where Paul 
reconciles what the law says about God's righteousness with what the gospel says about it. The two are not in conflict. The law and the gospel are different, but they agree with regard to the righteousness of God, and yet one makes it a bit of bad news for sinners. The other makes the righteousness of God mean good news for sinners. So let's see how that happens. This is where Paul shows how the justice of God is perfectly compatible with the mercy of God. This is the vital nexus in the New Testament where Scripture explains what Psalm 85 verse 10 means when it says, mercy and truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Here the righteousness of God is reconciled with the justification of ungodly sinners. That, by the way, is the language of Scripture. Look at verse 5 of chapter 4. In this very same context, Paul says, God justifies the ungodly. And anyone who is who was steeped in the doctrine of the Old Testament would find a statement like that shocking, scandalously shocking. In the verses we're looking at, Paul summarizes how the righteousness of God is manifested in the law, in the gospel, and in the justification of sinners. And and I want that to be our outline this morning, and I'll try to make this as easy as possible for you to follow. There are three points. We're going to see how the righteousness of God is manifested in the law, in the gospel, and in the justification of sinners. So point one, here's how the righteousness of God is manifested in the law. We've already talked a great deal about this, but remember that as soon as Paul finished his opening words of greeting in this epistle back in chapter 1, he starts the meat of what he wants to teach them, the doctrinal portion of this epistle, with a declaration that the gospel is all about the righteousness of God. Romans 1.17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's the key verse, and it's the whole theme of the book of Romans. But then Paul actually begins this long treatise on the gospel by reminding us what righteousness means from the perspective of the law, not the gospel. In fact, turn back a page or two to Romans 1, and just notice there is a jarring note of discourse in the space between two verses between Romans 1.17 and verse 18. Verse 17 is the one that says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then immediately verse 18 answers with this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the gospel is supposed to be about the righteousness of God, but before Paul ever gets around to explaining that, The first thing he says is revealed from heaven is the wrath of God. Now, a lot of people today would say, Paul is doing evangelism wrong. You don't bring up the wrath of God to begin with. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. In fact, this is not the way most of us would begin a discourse on the gospel, because the gospel itself means good news. But in Paul's version... It never starts out sounding like good news. We're going to see this in a few weeks in Ephesians 2, where Paul, again, outlines the good news in a a more compact fashion. And again, it starts out like bad news. It always does with Paul, because Paul always starts where the law leaves off, with the wrath of God from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The law 
tells us we are condemned because we've offended God's righteousness. So God's righteousness is the very reason we're cut off from Him in the first place, alienated from God, or as Paul says in Romans 5, enemies of God. And that same righteousness means that God must judge evildoers. Romans 2 verse 5 says, impenitent sinners are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So it's quite true that God's righteousness is something that should make us, when we consider ourselves as sinners, should make us tremble. That's the culmination of everything the law says about God's righteousness, and Paul makes it the starting point for his exposition of the gospel. Bottom line, when the law is finished manifesting God's righteousness, all humanity stands guilty before God. And Paul painstakingly brings us to that point before he ever once considers what the gospel has to say about God's righteousness, what the gospel says that makes it good news. He exposits the bad news first. You're in Romans 3, or if you're not, turn back there. Look at the end of verse 9. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then starting in verse 10, going through verse 18, he quotes a string of verses from the Old Testament as proof. If you have a NASB, all the Old Testament quotations are in all caps, so you see that immediately. He's quoting the Old Testament there, starting in verse 10, going through verse 18. It's just one proof text after another showing that there is none righteous, no, not one. And that whole section consists of diverse quotations taken from various contexts in the Old Testament. And Paul surveys these texts, several of them, where Scripture condemns all of humanity. That's the point he's making. Nobody escapes this judgment. And he uses these verses like proof texts to show that in our natural fallen state, we are condemned already. And that, of course, is exactly what Jesus said in John 3.18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. The already aspect of condemnation is a chilling reality. What it means is there's no hope for any sinner to redeem himself from past mistakes. You cannot make up for the sins you've already committed by doing a lot of good things to make up for it because the law demands absolute perfection. If you've once sinned, and we all have, you have fallen short already. And the law has one message for sinners, and it's a curse. It's not a frivolous curse either, but it's a message of eternal damnation. It's a verdict that speaks with a note of hopeless finality. The law by itself has nothing more after that to say about the righteousness of God. It leaves us in a state of condemnation. And no one can claim to be free of sinful imperfections. The whole point here is that depravity is both universal and total. In fact, to drive home the truth that depravity is universal, this is the main point he's been making for two and a half chapters, Paul quotes an array of texts that are drawn mostly from the Psalms, verse 10. And and notice the universal expressions. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Six verses from the Psalms cited in just three verses here in Romans chapter 3, and they include eight expressions that underscore the universality of sin. None, no one, all, everybody. And two of those eight expressions are 
as emphatic as possible. No, not one. Not even one. And then Paul establishes the principle that depravity is total. He does that with a string of verses that illustrate how depravity comes from within, from within the heart of man. Just as Jesus said in Mark 7, verses 20 and 21, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, from the heart of man, comes everything that is evil. And Paul has chosen these texts carefully. They begin, if you follow the progression, they begin with the throat and move outward from the tongue to the lips to the feet, almost as if he is describing someone who spews depravity like vomit. Look at verses 13 through 18. This is as thorough a denunciation of the state of humanity as you can possibly imagine. And again, it's all drawn verbatim from the Old Testament Scriptures, verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, pay attention to what Paul is doing here. He's drawing short statements from a wide array of Old Testament contexts in order to substantiate what he's teaching about the universality and the totality of human depravity. He's doing systematic theology. Occasionally, someone in these postmodern times will claim that that's that's not a legitimate approach to understanding the truth of Scripture. In fact, it's becoming fairly commonplace to hear people champion narrative theology while they denigrate systematic theology as if those two are inherently opposed to one another. Narrative theology means truth taught in story form, like the parables of Jesus. The four Gospels and the historical books of Scripture are given to us in narrative form, obviously. That's the nature of history. And every now and then, lately more than ever, someone will come along who chafes and complains if you use the method Paul employs here. Paul is taking short statements and propositions dealing with a single topic from diverse places in Scripture. He doesn't even note the contexts that he's taken these verses out of, but he brings all of them together because they all say essentially the same thing. And he does this to shine the light brightly on a particular aspect of the doctrine he's teaching. And that's what systematic theology does. And here you see proof that the methodology, systematic approach to theology, is not foreign to Scripture. If anyone tries to tell you that uh, the systematic approach to doctrine is rooted in Greek logic and it's completely at odds with Hebrew thinking, and you hear this sometimes, just show them the book of Romans. Now, there's certainly a place for narrative theology, but Paul here is doing systematic theology. He's concerned specifically with hamartiology, that's the doctrine of sin, and the singular point he makes from this wide-ranging variety of statements that he's chosen from the Old Testament is that guilt is both universal and total. That is the verdict of the law. That's how the law manifests the righteousness of God. It condemns us. And Paul sums it all up in the first two verses of our text. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable before God. In the King James Version, it says, and the whole world may stand guilty before God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, the whole human race is devoid of true righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. The law condemns us all. Moses' law condemned the Jews who continually violated that law, and the law that's inscribed in our hearts and consciences condemns the rest of us. We're unrighteous. Every mouth is stopped. The whole world stands guilty before a truly righteous God, and the law itself quits at that point. It offers no redemption because it manifests the righteousness of God in a way that simply reveals and condemns our sin. And then the law demands justice. And if that were the end of the story, we'd be in an impossible situation. But Paul hasn't brought us to this point to leave us in despair. Immediately, he begins to explain how the righteousness of God is manifested in the gospel. That's our point, too, how the righteousness of God is manifested in the gospel. I ought to mention that Martin Luther, the great reformer, was was very nearly stymied when he came to this point in his study of the book of Romans, because he understood how the law manifests the righteousness of God, and he couldn't get past that. In fact, let me read you in his own words Martin Luther's testimony about this. He wrote this quote. Actually, he wrote it in German. Somebody translated it into English for me, but this is the English translation of what he actually, his own words. He says, I hated that expression, the righteousness of God. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, Certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it's not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with His righteousness and His wrath. But finally, Luther says, again quoting, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in the righteousness of God, uh, in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God. The faithful people live by a gift of God, namely, by faith. In other words, here's the crucial distinction. The law focuses on the righteousness that is demanded of us. The gospel is all about a righteousness that is provided for us. And here's how Paul says it, verses 21 and 22. But now, but now at last, turning from the law to the gospel, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for not against, but for all who believe. So here's a whole different way of looking at the righteousness of God. The law merely shows us how high, how impossibly high God's perfect righteousness sets the standard for us. But the gospel then shows us that the very righteousness of God, the perfect righteousness of God, is supplied by God Himself to those who believe. The law reveals the righteousness of God as a hopeless dilemma for sinners. The gospel reveals that God's righteousness is, in fact, the answer to that dilemma, the dilemma of our sin. 
God supplies the perfect righteousness. It's not our righteousness, it's His. His own righteousness, which is imputed to those who believe, to make up for a shortfall that none of us could ever remedy on our own. Imputed righteousness is precisely what Paul is talking about here. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. And I love the King James expression. The righteousness of God which is by faith unto all and upon all those who believe. He's very clearly describing an alien righteousness that is legally transferred. He later will use the word imputed to us, imputed from God to the believer. It's clear that Paul has imputation in mind throughout this context, and he'll use that very expression in chapter 4, verse 3, quoting from Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited or reckoned or imputed to him as righteousness. And again, in chapter 4, verse 6, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. This is the heart and soul of the biblical doctrine of justification by faith. It's the heart and soul of the gospel. That perfect righteousness, the very thing we need for a right standing with God, perfect righteousness is imputed to or put to the account of those who lay hold of Christ by faith. There are many biblical expressions that embody that truth. Our spiritual union with Christ, for example, means in the words of 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's the same thing portrayed in the imagery of Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for my soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest. It's what Paul meant in Philippians 3 when he said he counted all his own religious upbringing and and pharisaical legal observance, all of that he said he counted it as dung leaving all of it behind for what he said was this one single-minded purpose, Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's what Paul was describing also in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he wrote that God made Him Christ to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Just as the sins of every believer were put to Christ's account and He paid the price of those sins, in the very same way, His righteousness is imputed to those who believe and they gain the benefit of that perfect righteousness. So the principle of imputed righteousness is the central truth of everything Paul taught about the gospel. It's the linchpin of all gospel truth. And normally when Paul confronted false teachers and phony apostles, this was the main point of doctrine he had to defend. Virtually every heretic who has ever come along and and has tried to change the gospel in some way, they all teach that justification must be earned by works. That's the common thread of all false religion. All of them teach that the way to a right standing before God is through something you must do for Him. Biblical Christianity is absolutely unique in teaching that God Himself provides sinners everything they need for redemption, 
including the perfect righteousness required by the law. So the ground of our justification is the perfect righteousness of God imputed to us by faith. Neither good works nor legal obedience can earn us a righteous standing. It's only the imputed righteousness of God that can do that. That is the central theme of both Galatians and Romans. And in fact, it'll help you to understand all of Paul's epistles better if you see that ordinarily when Paul mentions the righteousness of God, he's not talking about the divine attribute of righteousness per se, but he's talking about the righteousness that's imputed to believers by faith alone, the righteousness that justifies the ungodly. Now, lots of people stumble when they encounter this truth. The Galatian heresy in the in the first century stemmed from a rejection of justification by faith. And every subsequent corruption of Christian teaching from the Pelagian heresy to the Roman Catholic Council of Trent, all of them have likewise rejected the idea that God justifies His people by faith through the imputation of His own perfect righteousness. And let's be honest, if we didn't find this expression in Scripture, Romans 4, verse 5, God justifies the ungodly, our natural inclination would be to think, there's an unsavory sound to that. Surely there ought to be some requirement that the ungodly become righteous before they can gain God's favor. Proverbs 17, 15 says, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination. What does a free pardon for the wicked have to do with justice? How can God freely justify ungodly people and yet He Himself remains perfectly just? How can that happen? The answer to that question is the third and final point in our outline. Here is how the righteousness of God is manifested in the justification of sinners. By the way, this was a major dilemma for believers in Old Testament times if they thought deeply enough about it. How can can God forgive sins without compromising His own righteousness? They understood why God would depose King Saul for his unfaithfulness, but how could, how could the same God fully forgive David and restore David to the throne in spite of all his failures? How could God be just and yet justify sinners? That question and all other questions like it touch on the central mystery that is finally answered for us in the gospel, heaven's best kept secret. Look at our text again. We left off in the middle of verse 22, and I'll pick it up right there. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Now, here's the key. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Christ offered a sacrifice to God. Jesus didn't die on the cross as a martyr or a victim of evil men. He offered Himself willingly to God as a propitiation, or in in simple terms, a complete satisfaction of all the demands of divine justice. Satisfaction. That's what this word propitiation means. Christ literally became a scapegoat for the full outpouring of divine wrath against sin. He stood in the place of sinners so that their guilt was imputed to Him, and He bore the penalty of it in full 
And now his perfect righteousness is imputed to them in return. And they stand before God arrayed in elegant perfection, the perfection of God's own son's perfect righteousness. They're justified by a righteousness that they didn't earn and don't deserve. And yet it's fully just because Christ willingly paid the penalty. Every claim of justice, the perfect justice of God is completely satisfied. So the sacrifice of Christ turned justice in our favor. And by the way, the sacrifice of Christ also applied retroactively to David and Abraham and every saint in the Old Testament who was ever justified by faith. And thus the righteousness of God in the forgiveness of sins was fully vindicated. That's what verse 25 means when it says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And so the righteousness of God, which apart from the work of Christ, could only demand the punishment of our sins, it's been turned in our favor. And now God's own perfect righteousness pleads on behalf of all sinners who believe. That's why 1 John 1.9 stresses that God is both faithful and just to forgive. God's perfect righteousness has been thereby reconciled to mercy. The law and the gospel are both vindicated. What the law says, what the gospel says, and what the judge of all the earth says turns out to be perfectly consistent with one another. And in the words of our text, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that's why the gospel is good news. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as needy sinners and confess that We are wholly unrighteous by by nature, under the law. We are utterly impotent to manufacture any authentic righteousness of our own. And the utter perfection of your righteousness is beyond any capacity we have even to understand. It's an intimidating subject. And we're grateful for the way the gospel manifests your righteousness as good news, glorious news about the way of salvation. Make us heralds of this good news. Make us living reflections of the glory of Christ, we pray in His name. Amen. Amen. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.